This is Once Upon a Crime in Hollywood, the Ronnie Chasen story. We left off with a frantic search for clues in the murder of Miss Chasen. A coroner's investigator visited the crime scene immediately, initially determining that Miss Chasen was shot by an unknown suspect who pulled up in a vehicle alongside her while she was stopped at the red light at Sunset Boulevard in Whittier. Let's hear what Lieutenant Tony Lee and Beverly Hills Police had to say in their first update to the public. We don't have crimes like this in the city of Beverly Hills, so it is a surprise to us. We've got numerous investigators at the scene that are trying to piece this thing together. We don't have a motive at this time. We don't have any suspect information. Sergeant Hoshino of the Beverly Hills Police Department added, We haven't ruled anything out. We just don't know. It's a big whodunit. We have no suspects or no leads in this case at this point, he said. We don't know if the window was shot or broken as a result of the accident. We don't know what the motive is. This is a fresh, active homicide. Confirming that detectives had served search warrants at the home and business. Hoshino also told the New York Times the person could have been in the car, outside the car, could have walked up to the car, driven up, We don't know at this point. Let's bring in Gil Carrillo, retired homicide lieutenant, 38 years with L.A. County Sheriff's Department. Can you explain how a crime scene is processed for a homicide of this nature? From the time you get the call, you arrive at the location. The first thing you do, contact the patrol officer that was there long before you were. Uh, They will give you a general briefing as to how they got the call, what they've done, and what they have. Uh, You then walk in uh, looking around, uh, being very careful where you walk, where you step, and just making general observations as to lighting, uh, weather conditions. And once you get general physical characteristics around her, then you start moving closer into, in this case, it was a vehicle, then you start moving closer into the vehicle while being sure to direct photographers to take any photographs that you may see uh, of interest, Uh, not only overalls, but something you may want to point out or some piece of evidence you may find. You're just doing the looking. You're not touching anything. Uh, Then once you get beyond that, then you have somebody from the crime lab with you and you're looking for any pieces of evidence that might be uh, important to the case. And pieces of evidence could be anything from casings. Uh, when I say casings, I'm talking about bullet casings, uh, cigarette butts, papers, receipts, anything that is out of the ordinary. Because uh, you only get one sh- one shot at the crime scene. You do a meticulous investigation, uh, and then you get to the body. And the body's the last thing you're going to get to because you're more interested and everything around the body. Once you get to the body, then you'll start looking for injuries, for wounds, how closely uh, were the wounds, what the trajectory might be. You might look for trajectory with uh, glass, if you have bullet holes as opposed to just a shattered, blown out window. Uh, You're looking for stuff like that, examining the body. Then the coroner gets there, the coroner will then uh, pull the body out. They will take control of the body. And once they get it out of the vehicle, if it's in a vehicle, then they will 
uh, lay it either on the ground or on the gurney, and you will examine it there. And they'll put something down, more than likely it'll be on the ground because they'll put a big sheet of uh, plastic or whatever they have on the ground, lay the body on that, so as not to lose any evidence that may be trapped in clothing. You'll examine, take notes, take photographs, and document everything, like I said, from lighting, weather, uh, position of the body, measurements from the car to fixed objects like curbs and telephone poles, direction of travel, uh, things like that. Once you're done, that's the crime scene. Surveillance videos from several residents in the neighborhood also captured the crash on video. The same day Ms. Chasen was murdered, Michael Levine, a fellow publicist and friend of Rodney, started a fund to raise $25,000 to find out her killer. Rodney's colleague said the police went to her office, went through her phone records and computers. They also searched her home in Westwood, collecting computers, hard drives, CDs, and boxes of files. The next day, Harold Matzer, who ran Palm Springs International Film Festival, put up a $100,000 reward for information leading to the suspect. Four days after the murder, the case made America's Most Wanted. Joining us, Steve Katz, former America's Most Wanted producer. America's Most Wanted was a key contributor to Chasen's investigation. What do you remember about covering the case in the beginning, and what details were immediately available to the public before the tipster came forward? Well, it was pretty unusual to have a story on the air four days after the murder happened. Uh, most of the stories that were on America's Most Wanted were cold cases that uh, were were unsolved for a long time and needed that extra little publicity push by of having it on a, a national TV show, um, and it usually took us. A good amount of time to put together the kind of story that we knew might get results you know from the, the show was on the air quarter of a century so we were pretty experienced at knowing exactly what to say and, and what strings to pull to get that you know a reaction from the audience what to tell them so we we were aware of the case but we were looking at it and um when we started getting calls from our network um, this was all anybody was talking about in Hollywood. We were based in Washington, D.C. and started to get calls. Hey, you got to put the story on this week. And then, you know, Beverly Hills Police said, uh, can you help us out with this? Um, and we couldn't say no. That was the whole purpose of the show is to uh, to um, help the public and help the police. So we, we put together as much information as we can. Not a lot was known, as, as you know. Um, the, the, uh, the Beverly Hills Police were as cooperative as they could be. Um, they didn't know a lot at that point. It had literally just happened. So it was a little more than than a news report, really. It was, here's here's who Ronnie was. Here's what happened as far as the police know. It was not that long a story. Um, stories on, on America's Most Wanted ran anywhere you know, from literally 15 seconds to 20 minutes. This was on the shorter. It was more than 15 seconds. But it was a short piece, and it was uh, it always ended the same way. Um, with John Walsh, our host, saying, "Here's here's what we know, and uh, if you could help, you know, you can make a difference. You can remain anonymous. Here's our the famous phone number: one eight hundred Crime TV. And uh, just you know, the the idea behind the show since the beginning was any any tips that came in did not go to the police. You weren't talking to the cops if you were afraid to talk to the cops. You were talking to a civilian like you. Our operators are all pretty well trained." They knew what to ask. They knew um, 
you know, how to elicit the information. And they also had a pretty good sense of what was real and what wasn't when a call came in. So when a tip comes in on any case, it's immediately handed over to the police. That America's Most Wanted was a TV show. We, we weren't an investigative unit. We weren't sworn law officers. We were a TV show that was collecting information and immediately handing it over to the police with the understanding the hopeful quid pro quo was like, you're going to tell us what's going on, right? Because we're, we're helping you. Did they? So um, did that they, night- Did they tell uh, you? Um, as, right. No, it depends on the case. I mean, there, there's cases where um, you know, we've had to tell the, the police, and I can't don't want to mention any particular, like, hey, don't tell us that. <laughs> you really shouldn't be telling us that. Because we were just such a partner. Uh, it was such an unusual situation for a television program to be a partner like that with law enforcement. And, um, you know, they knew, yes, we were an entertainment show. We worked for the entertainment division of Fox, but but we were doing a public service and, and the police knew where we were coming from. They knew where John Walsh was coming from. So um, that night uh, that we ran that piece, it was four days to set after the murder. We were on Saturday night at 9 p.m. Um, and, uh, you know, we got a couple of calls. It can go anywhere from like hundreds of calls on a case to one call to no calls. I always used to say we're entertaining six million people and talking to one that uh, is the one that we want to call. So we, we did get a call and from a very nervous guy who didn't really want to uh, tell us too much. He just said he saw the show and he had this feeling that this this person living with him and, you know, might be involved. But he he was afraid to say any more. And the operator, of course, with with the training, tried to get him to. To say, you know, what's the guy's name? Where, where does he live? Where is he now? That kind of thing. Uh, he was hesitant to say too much, um, but he promised to think about it and call back. And so that well, we would know that it was him calling back. He said, um, why don't we come up with a code name? And that way I'll give it to you and you'll know it's me calling and not just somebody claiming to be me. So he told us he wanted just to be called Nine of Hearts. That was his, that was the code that it was him. So we hung up um, that tip along with whatever other tips we got that night were passed along to the Beverly Hills police. I'm sure they looked at it and said, that's interesting. Um, we'd like to know more from this guy. Who was he talking about? And, and uh, he's not very specific about other than saying he thinks that somebody in the same building with him might be involved. Um, we felt the same way. Um, and we just waited. We waited. And then a couple of days later, the phone rang because that hotline was 24-7. It wasn't just on Saturday nights. And the guy calls and says, hey, it's Nine of Hearts. I go, whoa. And he said, I thought about it. Talk to people about it. Everyone told me I'm crazy, but here's what I know. And I, I, I think you know the story. It's been told a couple of times now. He just said, I was in my apartment here in the Harvey Apartments. And um, I'm kind of like down and out musician. And one of my fellow apartment dwellers, the night that uh, this murder happened, came into my apartment and said, have the police been here? And I said, no, this is, I'm speaking in his voice. He said, no, I said, no, the police haven't. He goes, you're sure the police haven't been here? I, I kind of wouldn't know if the police had been here. And he goes, okay, this conversation never happened. And then he just bugged out. And um, the tipster said he was very polite. He just seemed very nervous, uh, but he, he was kind of like one... The, the Harvey Apartments, I don't know if you've no. talked about the Harvey Apartments yet. It's kind of a, a, a mixed residence, as the tips describe it. Everything from students to 
hopeful musicians like himself and people on public assistance like himself, uh, to families working five jobs to make it. It was just a mixture. It wasn't the palace, you know, and it, it wasn't Skid Row. It was kind of like halfway in between. The apartments weren't very, very expensive. Um, I think he was paying like six fifty a month or something like that for his apartment. And then the next morning, he told us what really made him cause the um, a couple of days later was the guy Harold Smith, his name, came back into the apartment and asked him if he can uh, borrow a dollar. That's what he need a dollar for. He goes, "I need to take a bus to Beverly Hills." He goes, "What's in Beverly Hills?" It was my bicycle. Now that was significant, and that's what the tipster said convinced him that that Harold was involved. Because right after Harold left his apartment the previous night, he turned on the television was uh, and saw that there was a murder. And that's all the television was talking about. It was in Beverly Hills. He didn't immediately put everything together, but he said, why is my apartment neighbor acting so suspicious right after this big thing happened? Isn't that interesting? Harold was known for riding his bike around and stuff like that. So the next morning when he came in and said, I got to go pick up my bike it's in Beverly Hills, the tips said, oh, man, it's, it's, it's got to be him. I know he's a two-time loser. I know he's done other things and he's acting so suspiciously. I... I I need to at least have him checked out because I have a gut feeling. And um, as the tips have said, look, I'm not a, I'm not a snitch. I, he's, he certainly, I could tell you this, he's not a friend of law enforcement. He had his own issues, but he just felt like, um, like there was something going on. Harold had stored some boxes of stuff in his apartment because he was uh, being kicked out of the, uh, the Harvey. And um, so he knew he'd probably be back. And um that's what he told us. Um, he still didn't want his name used. He, he just, you know, we, we made that promise. You can remain anonymous. Um, I'd say the Beverly Hills police really pushed us for his name. And uh, we really pushed Nine of Hearts to, you know, to come forward. And finally, he said, if they can guarantee that I, I'll remain anonymous to police, um, I'll I'll go meet with them. I'll tell them what I know. And and that did happen. And um and then after that, what happened happened, which I, you know, we're about to talk about. But um, I went out to LA and actually met the tipster, um, and gave him a business card. And we, we sat down. We we were going to meet with Beverly Hills Police together, and and I was my job was to try to convince him to come on the air and tell us, you know, um, his story on our show. And uh, I forget it. We sat down and I gave him my business card and he handed me a nine of hearts from a deck of cards that uh, that he had uh, bought. Um, and he still then we went and talked to the Beverly Hills police at that point together because um, we were doing a follow up story. But he still didn't want his name used. I mean, he just really he just was a guy doing the right thing and he wasn't in it for the publicity or anything like that. He just, you know, he just wanted to do the right thing. And anyway, that's my recollection of the tip. Can you tell us about the tipster's relationship with the suspect? Yeah, they were neighbors. I mean, they were friendly. Um, the, the, the tipster, um, and I learned a lot of this later. I know we're going to talk about him in particular, and, and uh, we'll use his name. I don't know if you've done that yet. Um, all, all he told us at the time was that this was a neighbor that he knew um, and knew well enough to know that he was generally a nice guy. He knew he had some kind of police record. Um, he knew that he was known to ride a bicycle around all over the place. 
Um, and uh, he knew he trusted him well enough to uh, to let him store some stuff in his house. And and um, I just remember one of the things that he told us was that the following the morning when he said he needed the dollar um, for the, the bus ride, he said, if I don't come back by Friday, you could just take my stuff and it be yours or whatever, because it means I'm I'm gone. And uh, the tipster told us, like he said to him, you know, if you're feeling depressed or suicidal or whatever, there, there's help that you can get. He was concerned about him a little bit. And and the guy, Harold, said to him, I'm good. It's OK. And that's, that's the last conversation they had. How credible do you consider the tipster's account of Harold Smith's actions after the night of the murder? We, we felt at America's Most Wanted that it was very credible. As I said, the, the operators who took the calls from the public were pretty well trained. We didn't just put anybody on those calls. You had to go through a training program, and most of them had been there for years, frankly, longer than me. And I started working there in the year of 2000, and most of the operators had been there 10 years already when I got there, and were still there when the show went off the air 10 years later. So there's certain things that they would listen for, tone of voice, and they would ask them you know, questions. Now, the first night that he called, it wasn't a long conversation because he didn't go into detail. But when he called back, you know, they were asking him to repeat the story and, and, and you know, ask for certain details that just told us that he was telling the truth, that he was credible. Um, and, um, you know, I should say we, we told him, hey, you know, there's a reward been announced. And he said, that's I didn't know that. That's that wasn't his motivation. He just thought that Harold um, you know, if Harold did this, there are other people living in that building that could be in danger, and he just wanted uh, it to at least be looked into. So we thought it was pretty credible. His he he didn't come across as anything but totally honest broker. And, and they said we talked to tipsters, everything from kids doing prank calls, which took about usually ten seconds to figure out, to um, the actual perpetrator calling our hotline and just trying to suss out what we know. So we we've had you know we used to get the whole gamut of calls and um, just this just seemed like a credible one and normally what happens is if say there's twenty calls on a certain case uh, on a night our operator trained to say to law enforcement take a look at this one here's all here's all twenty they're yours it's your information but take a look at this one because it just seems like it's like on the money and that was the case with this one. In the meantime, the first piece of evidence was leaked to Fox 11 Los Angeles. During a November 24th newscast on KTTV, a three-page coroner's report was shown reading one bullet was recovered from her back while at the hospital and is possible from a 9mm hollow point. Two days later, L.A. County Corner spokesperson confirmed to CNN that the leaked document shown on KTTV appeared to be authentic. He also said the report was written by investigators in order to help the doctor who would perform a full autopsy the day after the murder. Back to Gil Carrillo, retired homicide lieutenant, 38 years with the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. What do you remember about speaking on the case back then? Well, I, I didn't pay attention much to the news coverage because to a homicide investigator, a murder is a murder. It doesn't matter how famous or whether it's a transient or a well-known, world-renowned actress or publicist. Uh, it was a murder. 
the thing that made this unusual is you don't have many murders in the city of Beverly Hills. It was unusual that there was a murder in Beverly Hills. You don't hear about that all the time. And my only interest was in it was because I got called and asked if I would be willing to go take uh, a look at what they had. And I was called by the news media, not by Beverly Hills Police Department. I'm sure Beverly Hills, the last thing they would do would be call in some outside agency on a single murder like that. They're extremely competent. Uh, they wouldn't have called me. So it was the news media that called me. Uh, I got down there, did a stand-up interview uh, with Fox, and that was it. I did one stand-up with Fox. Uh, they asked the questions. I gave them answers. But I also reiterated to them that nobody knows the case as well as the investigators handling it. At this point in time, anything I had to say would be purely speculative. It's not my case. I have don't know the intimate details of the case. I don't know anything about the victimology of the case other than she's a publicist, a well-known publicist. And that's about it at that time. You were quoted on ABC Nightline as saying you thought the murder looked like a hit based on the League Coroner's report. Can you tell us how you made that assessment? Well, at the time, with the limited information I have, you had a very small shot group. Uh, my recollection says maybe three shots, a small shot group, the location of where it was at, the city of Beverly Hills. How did they catch this publicist at that intersection at that time uh, on her way home? They, she had just left some big public event. Uh, so somebody had to have knowledge of her whereabouts. In my opinion, this is not a location where you see a transient riding a bike uh, in any part of Beverly Hills, much less a transient riding a bike that could shoot a gun that could get a small shot group. Uh, quite honestly, I don't know that I could have gotten a shot group that small. I'm supposed to be trained. Outside the murder-for-hire possibility, there were multiple theories being rumored to the press about Ms. Chasen's death. Early in the aftermath, including stories about gambling debts, Russian mob hit, disgruntled film investors, Hollywood jealousy. Joshua Ritter, criminal defense attorney and former L.A. County deputy district attorney, host of his own podcast, True Crime Daily, Sidebar Podcast. You can find him on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Joshua Ritter ESQ. What kind of impact can leaks have on an investigation once information gets to the media? Especially on a case like this that has so much public interest, it can have a huge impact because you are going to have people who are going to start to speculate. You, you do have unusual circumstances to begin with. You have a murder taking place in an unlikely area uh, against a person that there, there doesn't seem to be any reason why she would be targeted. Um, it, it, you, you've now got a suspect that doesn't seem to, to line up with some, some of the theories surrounding the case and the investigation being done. And then when you start to get these whispers of evidence that come out and people are jumping to conclusions, it's going to create a lot of speculation. And I imagine it created a lot of headache for Beverly Hills PD to have to deal with all of these kind of 
conspiracy theories and tipsters uh, trying to add their insights onto where this investigation should lead them. How much do you think the leaked coroner's report impacted the coverage of the case and what the public thought about the murder? I think it it added fuel to that fire already, where people were already so kind of intrigued with this murder, um, you know, taking place in Beverly Hills, involving the the person that it did, uh, you know, her kind of status amongst the the celebrities uh, uh, in Hollywood, um, and then to just get a a glimmer of some of the evidence being leaked, uh, you know, just the fact that it's leaked evidence, I think it just kind of add added to that overall kind of media frenzy and speculation that was surrounding the case. One week later, the case took an unexpected turn. On December 1st, Beverly Hills police entered the Harvey apartment on Santa Monica Boulevard with a warrant for Harold Smith. Here's what happened, according to the LAPD, Captain Kevin McClure. At about 5.30 this afternoon, uh, Hollywood Division received a phone call from Beverly Hills Police Department that they were conducting a follow-up investigation at the Harvey Apartments here on Santa Monica. Um, while conducting that uh, follow-up, the person that they were looking for showed up. They attempted to uh, talk to the suspect. Um, when they did, the suspect uh, uh, produced a handgun and there was a self-inflicted gunshot wound at that point um, in time. So while L.A. Police Department is investigating an apparent suicide, Beverly Hills Police said it was a person of interest in Ms. Chasen's investigation. We now know that person was Harold Smith. So who was Harold Smith? In the next episode of our six-part series, we'll examine the person of interest, his alleged connection to Ms. Chasen's murder, if this was still a possible murder for hire, plus What else do we know about what happened at the Harvey that night? Join us.